Before we get into this episode of Conversations with Dwyer, I want to invite you to check out themattdwyer.com. There you can find merchandise like t-shirts or phone cases with the logo created by Charlene Yee. And you could become a Patreon subscriber. $5 a month gets you everything you could want. There's bonus material, videos, extended interviews, blogs. I sometimes do a podcast that solely lives on Patreon where I talk to comedians about the music they like. TheMattDwyer.com. Explore it. Also, all social media is there. Thank you, and enjoy this episode of Conversations with Dwyer. Welcome to Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is called Will to Power. It is by Springtime from the self-titled debut album. Also, Springtime is the name of that. And my guest today is Gareth Lydiard, who is also in The Drones, Tropical Fuckstorm, and he has some solo workout, as well as um, this new project, springtime which is incredible uh that song will the power is awesome the whole album is great i think it is my favorite music to come out this year which is saying a lot because this has been pretty great year for music but anyway uh there's also a song uh which i keep fucking up in the interview because i wrote it down (laughs) in my notes incorrectly but the song is called the viaduct love suicide and it's the second song on the album, which I have coming in the mail on vinyl, because I'm special. Uh, but I, I paid for it. Not that kind of special, where people give me things. Anyway, it's an incredible song. That Please, if you haven't checked out Springtime, do. Um, all of Gareth's work is pretty incredible. If you're unaware, I'm sure you are. But in the notes... In the show notes are the links to where all these various projects of his can be found on Bandcamp, and you could buy the music, and you can listen to it, and uh, that is that. But buy it. Don't stream it. Buy it. Uh, This was a... if And if you really want to enjoy me bumbling around like a goddamn idiot... You could become a Patreon subscriber for $5 a month, and you can watch the video version of my interview with Gareth where um, the lights go out, <laughs> It's uh, which is not in the audio interview. But because he's in Australia and I'm in the Los Angeles area, we have um, a huge time difference. And it started off where at... I thought I was interviewing him at 11 a.m. my time, but it was 11 a.m. his time. And then I thought I was interviewing him 5 p.m. my time, and it was 4 p.m. So I noticed he signed on, and I'm, like, bumbling around to get ready, thinking I had an hour to prepare. So I'm a little jumbled (laughs) at the top and, (coughs) excuse me, just not how I wanted to... uh, start off my interview with Gareth because I have immense respect for him, but I was just totally discombobulated and not, you know, I thought I had an hour. But that being said, it's a really great conversation. Uh, I'm, he's a brilliant musician. And uh, on the Patreon, there is like an extra 40 minutes of this conversation that you could watch on video. I'll probably put up the audio very soon as well. But, uh, yeah, and that's all on my website, themattdwyer.com. And if you need a website, you can go to kellyrdwyer.com, my partner in life. She makes websites, and she makes websites for not just me, but for My Favorite Murder, Ologies, the Exactly Right Network, as well as political people. She does everybody. So go to kellyrdwyer.com if you need a website, and I... I think her prices are reasonable. I don't know. I think it depends on what you want, to be quite honestly. And I think that's it for my conversation. Uh, I'll probably take the two weeks off of Christmas and not release anything. So, or not Christmas, you know, that holiday week. 
where it's not just Christmas, but all kinds of holidays. I'm sorry I said that. Um, that is it. I think that is the end of my intro. Please enjoy my conversation with Gareth Lydiard. <laughs> This springtime album is just mind-blowingly good. I'm sure you're aware of that, right? <laughs> um, oh yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, you know. I because uh, that's I, I, how did that come about? It just I mean, it came about mainly because Jim, you know, Jim is he's got a band with George Zalurus called Zalurus White. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, yeah, they're great. They, but they they came to Australia for a um, for a tour, and then COVID hit, and Jim got stuck here. Um, usually Jim lives in um, Brooklyn, but uh, yeah, he just got stuck in Australia. George had to go back to Crete. Um, yeah, and then I mean, we just started doing duo gigs because there was nothing else to do. Yeah, so we did a bunch of gigs where he and I would just play together. I mean, I've known Jim for yonks. Like, uh, I knew him when I was a little teenager. I was like a roadie. Oh, really? A lighting guy, a sound guy. Yeah, a million years ago, like in the 90s in uh, Western Australia. And I'd work on bands like, yeah, like the Dirty Three, all sorts of Australian bands, and things like Ron's Band and Fugazi and, you know, whenever they came through town, I would have to aid them in some sense. Um, yeah, and I'm 33. I knew them from back then. I don't know. And then we we would play those All Tomorrow's Parties festivals. Do you remember them? Yeah. In the, the noughties. Yeah, 33 and my old band, the Drones, would do a lot of them. And Anyway, so that's how me and Jim got together. And then, and then we just thought about adding a third person. And because I had played – played a bunch of shows with Chris in a different band that had reformed an old Australian band called the Triffids. Um, we would do like these sort of reformation gigs. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he, in sound checks and stuff, Chris would play his piano and just blow my mind because he's just, yeah, he's fully virtuosic. You know? um, yeah. So I, I suggested that to Jim. I said, well, what about Chris? Um, Jim had never really met him. But we got in touch and, yeah, it happened. But it happened really quick because we didn't have any time. There was all the lockdowns and stuff. Um, and we found, like, a two-week window. We were lucky to get a two-week window to do everything. So in two weeks we wrote a bunch of stuff and then we played two shows to warm up for a recording. Then we recorded in here for five days, I think. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's it. Yeah. Like, I, doesn't that seem rather unusual? Like, I mean, that's like fast. Um, yeah, yeah, it was really fast. Um, it was good because, I mean, like before that, we'd done a tropical fuckstorm record, but that had been a real, it was a real head fuck because we just kept getting shut down by lockdowns. And, um, it was just really, really difficult record to make. And, uh, and then, yeah, the springtime album just happened really fast and came together really easily, you know. But, you know, if you're playing with Jim and Chris, it's, they're just very easy to play with. He's Jim is one of the most incredible drummers I think I've ever heard, and I don't think that's hyperbole at all. Like, he's fucking incredible. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I think that. I, I put him up there with, you know, like people like, I mean, obviously someone like John Bonham is a lot more famous, but... You know, like after John Bonham, everyone sort of played like John Bonham, which is, you know, pretty amazing. It's like Jimi Hendrix or, you know, once you hear Neil Young or once you hear Thurston Moore, you kind of can't help but sound a bit like them. Um, I think, you know, Jim is the same. I mean, he's not as famous as John Bonham, but if you do know him and you're a drummer, you just tend to start incorporating some of his, you know, style into your own. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, but he doesn't he doesn't think that. He's a, <laughs> quite a funny guy. 
It's, it's, it's amazing because he's one of those drummers that you can just, you can watch him the whole time. Like I've watched videos and it's like, you're just mesmerized by what he does. And I would say there's not a lot of drummers that, that do that. No, not really. No, no, not at all. Um, yeah. And uh, the Dirty Three, they, I mean, you know, they, they still play occasionally, but man, they were out of control. In the 90s and 2000s, they were just mind-boggling, you know. And like, it was I'm not old enough. Well, I'm not old enough to have seen something like Jimi Hendrix, but I saw Dirty Three, which is the same, <laughs> same power. Just like holy shit, just absolutely blow your mind. And there was nothing like it in the in the 90s. I mean, there was absolutely nothing that sounded like it. That's what when I heard it, and I heard I think when their first or second album first, and I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> like it's just like. Yeah. You, you're taking some that's how I feel about the springtime album like when I heard it like it was immediately like I was hit and I was just like holy fuck this is something in my opinion I think it's the best album that will come out this year oh wow thanks wow that's nice yeah yeah, I, yeah. I've so, sent the videos to like everybody I'm sure people are sick of me texting them your videos <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it's just, yeah, it's odd. It, it feels like, well, especially after the last Tropical Fox song record, it just happened so easily. It hardly felt like we made an album, you know. But then, um, obviously, fuck, the, the, pa- the pandemic fucked up our tours and all that afterwards, so that's a shame. Yeah. Were you planning on coming to the States with Springtime or with Tropical Fox Storm? Uh, both, both. Um, yeah, like, we were... We we're keen to go to the states and Europe with springtime and and just you know do all the regular things you do with a band. Um, but yeah, I mean we had it all booked, but then it's just all postponed. Everything's just a mess. You know, our, yeah. our first our first gig out of Melbourne was going to be the Sydney Opera House. You know, like that would have been cool. Um, yeah, and we got that gig. We didn't even have a, a band name, and we hadn't even played together when we. We'd already scored an opera house gig in the big room. <laughs> I think you're doing some things right if you if you don't have a band name and you can score a gig. <laughs> we, were, we were kind of nervous. It got cancelled, which was you know a shame, but uh, at the same time it was like because it would have been literally our third ever show, you know. But yeah, it would be nice to go out on tour and do the, the joy of touring is. Once you've done about 10 or 20 shows, you start getting really good and it just, you know, being the pleasure is amplified. It's really good once you start doing this psychic shit with each other, which we're kind of pretty good at anyway, but you can't, you can't, you you can rehearse your whole life. You would never get as good as just having to do 10 shows in a row, you know? Yeah. So um, it's a shame that, yeah. I, I was I'm kind of crazy, so I try not to leave the house. But I was going to leave the house for that one. <laughs> if you come, <laughs> yeah. hey, where are you? Where, where are you? In, in the I'm out, outside Los Angeles. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we live yeah. in a east of the city because uh, it's just the city's too fucking expensive and it's just insane. Yeah, I don't, it is. Yeah. I have to. Uh, you have to deal drugs and rob people to just pay your rent in Los Angeles. <laughs> Crazy. Oh yeah, yeah. We've been there a lot, and it's yeah, it's a strange place. I like yeah. it. Yeah, it's good fun. Um, how old were you when you were doing? Because I read that you were doing light shows. I didn't know you did roadie stuff. But like, was were you just were you doing music yet, or were you still interested in music when you were doing stuff with Fugazi? And had you started a band yet? Um, yeah, I had bands. Um, yeah, uh, we've released me and the guy that I used to live with and made all the music with. We started the band, the drones together. And, um, a couple of years ago we put out, we found all our four track cassette tapes. And, uh, so we just made a compilation of all the weird shit we'd done. And that came out a couple of years ago on Bandcamp as a thing called Bomb Odyssey. Because we used to smoke a lot of bombs. <laughs> but yeah, so we were playing music. But um, you know, I've been doing that since high school. And then, but it was literally the first job I ever had was yeah, this lighting job where you know we 
you know, it is what it sounds like it is. But um, the job interview was really good. It was, it's, and this is the only job interview I've ever had. I had to meet this guy who owned this company, and um, I met him on a corner somewhere. I jumped into his van, and he said, "Oh, okay." So you want to be a lighting guy or you want to work in the music industry? I went, yeah. I was like 17. And he's like, all right, um, do you like the Stooges? I went, yeah. And he's like, cool, you got the job. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my only ever job interview. But And from that, from the lighting bit, then we started doing, I mean, I would, I did everything. I did, you know, loading audio, I would, you know, for big festivals, I was the guy, um, I should have had an armoured truck, but I didn't, but I would go pick up all the money from the record stores, from the ticket sales. So sometimes I would have like 60 or 70,000 bucks in a backpack, in cash, in a van, you know, stuff like that. And then I would help uh, sometimes, you know, if bands were just massive drug addicts and alcoholics, I would have to drive them everywhere. You know, I would uh, I would feed people. I used to have to go shopping for Henry Rollins and, you know, get him. He really liked Gatorade. Heaps <laughs> <laughs> of Gatorade. I remember him. Um, he then seems like a Gatorade guy. He's a Gatorade guy, yeah. Yeah, he seems a, like it. Yeah, for Garzi, I, I would buy food for them, uh, you know, to put backstage. I would do their lights. I would, you know, drive their equipment around. Yes, things like that. Um, it was good, you know. I'd, I'd work on Jesus Lizard shows, Dirty Three shows, Nick Cave. It was a fucking cool, cool job. I, one of the articles I read about you, Yao talks about uh, uh, your new album. Actually, I don't. It was he talks about Viaduct uh, Suicide Love Song, which Viaduct Love yeah, Song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we've known him for ages. Jim's known him. I think the first time the Dirty Three went to the states. Uh, the first time I played in LA, uh, Dave was at their show and they hadn't booked anywhere to live, anywhere to stay. They were going to be there for like a week or something. So they, he, uh, Dave invited them to stay at his house. So, yeah, I think he was like one of the first people they met in the state. And then sort of same thing happened to us early on in the drones in the early 2000s. Um, we were playing LA somewhere, some little venue, and Dave was there, and then you know we hung out with him a whole bunch, played gigs with him. We did a show in like New York, upstate New York, and it was like um, us, Suicide, and then the Jesus Lizard. But that's a pretty cool lineup. Yeah. Was- did anybody ever have you do any uh, runs for anything uh, questionable when you were? Because you said some drug addicts. Did you have to get yourself into some? Dangerous situations ever? No, they were pretty good at supplying themselves. But I did, <laughs> I did a few with guys from um, the Beast Suburban and the scientists who, you know, in the 90s, they were like really heavy, really super, you know, it, was, it would have been, you know, Beast Suburban was like Black Flag crossed with the Rolling Stones or something. It was really intense. And, uh, yeah, I remember I would open guitar cases after we've just got off a flight or something and there would be weed and there'd be like methamphetamine, you know, in a guitar case that's just been on an aeroplane. It's like, fucking hell. Jesus Christ. Yeah, I've heard, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's astounding. Uh they pulled anybody's pulled out of I heard Johnny Dwyer from the OCs talk about that, like just taking massive amounts of cocaine into Europe. And it's like, are you out of your fucking mind? Yeah, yeah. You gotta be careful. And <laughs> the thing is, like you you forget that you've got it. Like everyone's been guilty of it. You, you'll just forget that it's on you. I remember waking up on an international flight and uh this was like with the drones. And then uh, two of my bandmates who were sitting next to me weren't there anymore. I woke up and then sort of, you know, started watching TV or whatever. And they just never came back. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? I went, oh, no. So I went up 
to the back of the aeroplane and there was a toilet. You know, it was everyone was asleep in the plane. There was a locked toilet up the back. Went up there and I, and I put my ear against the door and I could hear him, you know, partaking in the... <laughs> the, only way, the only way to get rid of it, you know, if they had it, they would have gone, oh, fuck. The only way to get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, that's half of the course with rock and roll. Even if you're not a fucking pull on. What was uh, and you you got into music at a young age. I saw that you were into jazz, and I was just interested. Like, I don't know that you don't know a lot of kids that go from high school into jazz into rock. I was also that guy into jazz, but never played anything because yeah. it's too hard. It's too hard to play. Um, yeah, I was into. Uh, I had a saxophone before I had guitar, but um. We had a library near us and you could go and you could, you know, you can take a book out of the library, obviously, but you could also take cassette tapes. You could borrow cassettes. And whoever it was that stocked the cassette section of this library um, just had really good taste in free jazz. So there was, you know, there, there was, you know, stuff like Sonny Rollins and um, Thelonious Monk, but then it, there was also Albert Isla and Don Cherry and uh, fucking Ornette Coleman and, really out there stuff. And, you know, I would see, I didn't know what it was, but I would take the tapes home, just listen to it, like, holy shit. Like, you know, when I was 13 or 14, like, listening to Ornette Coleman, just going, what is happening? Why are they doing this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't hear Ornette Coleman. You, know, you I were just, just like, what? Where's the logic? Where is the logic? But it was great. It was fucking a great lesson. But that's pretty wild as a 13-year-old, you're into Ornette Coleman. Because I think most 13-year-olds would be like, would give up and just be a... Most adults who even know a little bit about music are like, what the fuck is this? Yeah, but it was like so mysterious. I mean, you could get why Sonny Rollins is doing something or John Coltrane, you know, or Charlie Parker or whatever. You can get, you know, there's a method to the madness, whereas Ornette Coleman's sort of, it's just, it's madness. And... um. But then it was an adult doing it, you know. It was so I was like, why? If 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 an adult is doing this, then there must be something in there that I'm missing, you know. So I just sort of stuck with it, you know. What is this? What's at the bottom of this? So um, yeah, I did that. But then playing saxophone was uh, it, it's 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 really hard if you're going to be good. Like you know, you'd listen to John Coltrane and just go, well, I'm never going to be able to do that. But then I heard Jimmy, I heard Jimmy Hendrix, and I thought, okay, well maybe, you know, obviously he's he's virtuosic, but there's a better chance of me being able to do that than being able to do what Charlie Parker or Coltrane did. And then, um, yeah, and then we had this kid at school, a year below us, and he was an autistic kid, and uh, his autism made him focus on music. You know, that was his obsession and he just would never shut up about it. But he um, put us all onto, you know, he got us into Tom Waits and Suicide and Stooges, um, New York Dolls, you name it. Like he he just hipped us to the wildest stuff. Like, you know, we would never have gotten into that at the time. Yeah, so that was really good. We got a good education really early. Um, was you know, Psychic Psychic TV, you know, just the throb and gristle, just the weirdest shit you've ever heard. Were not a lot of people listening to that stuff around you at that time? Well, not, no, not where we, because we came from like the northern beaches of Western Australia, which is more, it's like a sort of small scale version of something like Huntington Beach or, you know, around there where it's kind of, you know, surfers are pretty tough, you know, so very macho environment. And, um, you know, everyone was into shit like Nirvana, obviously, that was coming through, and everyone was into Led Zeppelin and Hendrix and The Doors. But the weirdest stuff, yeah, we had to find out from our little mate, man, who was just fully obsessed with music. Yeah, I mean, hearing Suicide when you're 14 or 15, it's just like, what the fuck is this? 
And then we got on to shit like Black Flag and that and, you know, Bad Brains, just all the classics. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read you because you, uh, and I've, I'm bringing this up because it's just something I sort of relate to is like you were a smaller, skinnier guy among those surfers and I was mm. sort of the, and I mean, I was that, I was that among the football guys and they just knocked the shit out of me left and right. Was there, yeah. cause it sounded like you had a similar, like work, working class kind of tough neighborhood and you get fucked yeah. up pretty, pretty easily. Yeah. I mean, it was weird cause we were on the beach in this beautiful spot. There was great surf beaches, but you know, when everybody started leaving high school and stuff, they would, you know, these young guys would literally move into sort of a dilapidated mansion on the beach. It was affordable, you know, and all they had to do was sell weed and sell some speed, you know, and they were fine. And they would literally just jump out their bedroom windows with their surfboard um, across the, the West Coast Highway and then they'd be in the water, like, which is, it was a real working class place. It's just inconceivable that that, could be the case now. I mean, that that area is now fully gentrified and you would never be able to afford anything there. But we just had the run of paradise. But at the same time, yeah, a real macho. I never learned to surf because you just, you would get your head punched in. There was too many, too many of those rules, the real weird macho rules if you get, if you drop in on someone, if you get in someone's way. But, um, but then because I played music, I would play in really, you know, basically very fast kind of punk bands, you know, like Bad Brains kind of style, Dead Candies kind of style. And I would play with my bands at their parties, at surf parties. So then they kind of took us under their wing, you know, protected us. So it was safe to go out drinking because I knew the crew, you know. What is that fucking Beach Boy song? The, the, the bad boys know us and they leave us alone, you know, that Surfing USA or whatever. That was what it was like. <laughs> so it was kind of, yeah, it was, a, it was a good idea to play music. And then eventually I just kept playing music and thought, fuck it. And then that's when we moved to Melbourne, which is more of a, uh, it's, it's a hell of a music town. You can, you can make a living playing music here. Yeah. Was playing music a step outside of what your family was known for? I know your uncle's a poet. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, he is, yeah. Um, he, I wouldn't say he was like a black sheep, but, yeah, he's something different. My mum liked music. My dad liked music, but they, you know, I don't think they wanted me to become a musician. Yeah, they didn't encourage it, really. Um, yeah, but they weren't against it. But, you know, it was only when, you know, I started showing up in the newspapers that, you know, my dad read that he sort of got behind the whole music thing. But, um, yeah, yeah. But I never sort of intended to become a musician. It just sort of happened. I just smoked weed and didn't think about anything. And <laughs> took out. You know, just that classic, I was just a loser. And especially growing up on a beach, I have like a, a, a sort of incredibly uh, well-tuned uh, skill, which is just relaxing i can relax anywhere yeah i was taught to relax by the beach <laughs> yeah. do you do you still sort of take that approach of where you just don't think about it or does has that changed over the years uh to a degree yeah it's it's interesting because it's like i mean we're fully diy or something like that so so you have to think about it but you know, there's the nuts and bolts. There's all the ad administration. It's a business, blah, blah, blah. But it, it would never affect anything we do musically. You know, we would never change our musical direction or, yeah, the way we come at it because of you know, financial concerns. We've always done exactly what we wanted to do, made the art we want to make, and then try and figure out how to scrounge a living from that. Did you, other than the other way around. You manage yourselves and you have your own label, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And we've done that for 20 years, you know, like Fiona, who's in Tropical Fuckstorm and she was in the drones too. She seems to have a knack of she's really good at the business side of stuff and organising and, and basically turning, you know, we we don't sound like fucking Coldplay, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's hard to turn that into 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 money. And it's good, like say it's like touring. It's touring is great because you get really good. Making a living out of playing the way we do it is also really good because you can just think about it full time. Um and it really helps with you know with the art. You know, it helps you hone your skill and and it just you can do things like daydream and think about music more than you would if you if you had a day job. So was was there a moment where you were just like, "Fuck it, we're not going to go with labels, or we're going to do this on our own"? For, was it like because of dealing with the business? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we sort of had to. It was a necessity. It wasn't like any labels were going to pick us up anyway, like or any you know major labels, obviously. And we came up, you know, once the internet had been born and, and wrecked the music industry. So, you know, in the noughties is when we were, you know, getting our shit together and becoming a, you know, a touring band and a, a, a real professional working band. And, you know, the music industry was just, it had collapsed. So it's not like there was ever going to be like a fucking, you know, a David Geffen stepping in and saying, you know, here's a quarter of a million bucks, mate, your next record. Those days were over at that point. So we were just forced to do it, you know. We started touring so much that obviously we couldn't have jobs and uh, so we had to make touring pay, you know. Otherwise, you can't eat, you know. It's, it's really hard. Yeah. Because <clears throat> I, I, I mentioned your uncle and I was – Curious why, what inspired you to use the, his poem for your song, which I, I know I already like praised the shit out of you at the top, but I was like, but that song, the first time I heard it, I wept and that doesn't like, I'm not a tough guy. I cry at TV commercials sometimes, but, <laughs> but like that song really hit me. And then I read the lyrics and like the origin of that song and what it's about. And it, then my wife walked in on me and I was fucking sobbing, <laughs> So, which is not something that, you know, it's rare that a song can make you feel so much emotion. And mm. I just wondered, mm. like, I mean, did you sense that when you were creating it, that it was going to have this much emotion? And what about your uncle's poem drew you to it? Uh, I mean, look, we there was necessity because we had to make up a lot of stuff really quick. We had to, invent a bunch of songs really fast so that we could play a gig or play a couple of gigs and then go and record them. So, and, you know, writing words is, is it's not something you can do super quick. So I kind of thought, fuck, I mean, we, we can come up with more music than you can imagine. We can just improvise music. It's so easy to come up with a decent tune or blah, blah, blah. But words is a different thing. I was like, fuck, I'm going to need heaps of words I'm not going to be able to write heaps of words in two weeks so then I yeah I just talked to my uncle and said you know help I'm fucking I've bitten off more than I can chew have you got anything that's kind of you know set up like a song you know because he does stuff he does all sorts of poetry and some of it's you know there's no real you know it's not a very musical meter or something you know it's not something you could stick in verse. And, um, yeah, so he sent me a bunch of stuff. And, I, I mean, I, I knew a bunch of stuff anyway. I think I asked for the Viaduct Love Suicide specifically because I just knew that that had – it's got the sort of the tension in it, the push and pull that you need to make a good song, which is basically this woman who works – and she worked with him at the NHS in England and uh, she was so slammed at work and, you know, underpaid, that she was so busy looking after other people, looking after their children, that she couldn't look after her own. And her child had, you know, needs that most children don't have. The child was just, had disabilities. 
and um, yeah, so she just must have gone a bit, bit mad, you know, fell into despair and killed herself and the child by jumping off a bridge holding the kid. You know, so it's a, which is an intense thing, but then it's done for love. So there's the tension. She killed her child because she loved the child. So, yeah, that's, you know, that gives that lyric, you know, life. It's it's like a lightning bolt that hits the fucking, the rock pool by the ocean that sun suddenly infuses life into whatever minerals are within it. Like, yeah. So that was a no-brainer, that one. And then he had Genie in, in the bottle, same sort of thing, great title, you know. Um, yeah. Um, he gave me a ton more stuff, but I haven't had time to figure it out. Yet, so. Yeah, but he's, he's someone I've known my whole life. He's Irish, first-generation Irish, living in the UK. And, like, my earliest memory of meeting him is – we were somewhere in the Midlands in England, so it's really grim. And they were living in a farmhouse, and uh, like the farmhouse was heated by having cows living under the house, under the floor. So at night, the cows would go in to this kind of, you know, it's almost like a, a garage under the house, and then their body heat would rise up through the house, and that's how it was heated. Anyway, he took me out in a paddock in a field. And um, he showed me a skull. He'd found a human skull out in the field. You know, and I was like fucking four years old or something. So that was cool. I remember going, cool. Fuck it out. So he, he would have been about 30, you know, like. So, yeah, and he's always just shown me really good books and he's just a, a font of knowledge. Like, it's really amazing. He knows everything about literature. And, uh, and yeah, he's 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 a big deal in the poetry world, which is it's hard to do that, you know. Yeah, rock and roll's a hard poetry is a harder game, but he's managed to do you know like what we've done, like yeah, turn it into a living and and and, and make a name for himself. Was was he an inspiration in uh, sort of from that young age, like somebody who's creative in your world? So like sort of like you could do it too. Yeah, yeah. He he, having him there made it seem like that kind of pursuit was, was you could do it. It was possible. You could turn, you know, a love for a passion into you know to money, and why not? You know, I come from the nineties. So I get guilt. I feel guilty if I'm fucking paid for anything that I do for that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. But yeah, he definitely was. He, he sort of having him in the family was was good for me. Yeah, I didn't realise it at the time, but yeah, it gave me a, a sense of confidence that I wouldn't have had. Yeah, you mentioned the '90s, and it's something I've been reading about a lot lately. Is that the whole sellout? culture of like how that was so prominent in the 90s and now yeah uh, it in some ways i don't know i mean now it's a whole different ball game because people are like man if i can get a fucking song in a commercial i can live for a year yeah yeah has your yeah there's no there's no shame in uh promoting yourself honestly yeah yeah it's crazy. Uh, did, has, has your views of that changed uh, on the yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I was really into Fugazi and really into, you know, SST records and that was kind of where my, you know, I got all my kind of belief system from, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't hold it against anybody if they do a television commercial or, or a, uh, you know, put their, their film in their music and get a lot of money and if they put their music in a film and get a lot of money. Um, but then as well, it's not like anyone's asking me for, the, for, for music for a Coke commercial or – so I've never been – I've never been in a situation where I've had to think, hmm, should I or should I not sell out? So, yeah, I don't know. Can you imagine <laughs> – 
Can you imagine anyone asking me, like, you know, we've got a, a new Land Rover Discovery. We'd like to use your music in the commercial, you know. It, it can happen to Iggy Pop, but not me. Yeah, maybe in another 20 years. Because it took Iggy a while to get to that point. <laughs> yeah, selling, I think it's like health insurance or something in England, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, he's in a lot of commercials here. Help. We, we don't he's have health. 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 He was, there was a oh, period. Yeah. yeah, we don't have, oh. this fucking country's a goddamn shithole, man. <laughs> <laughs> so if you, yeah. if you need like a roommate or something, let me know. And, you know, I'll have to take my kids with, but. Uh, mate, get in line. I've got plenty of American friends who are planning on moving here. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, we should just be ashamed. Just like the way we treat humans in this country. It's just, it's, it's just, it's, I'm pissed off on a daily basis. Yeah, it would be hard to bear. I was thinking about that the other day. Just And like if Trump gets a second term, fucking hell. This is going to be a wave of refugees. Oh, it's, I mean, it's, we're already sinking. I mean, this is already like, my one friend is like, it's a fascinating time. We get to watch the collapse of our empire. (laughs) It's like, and it's true. It's crumbling. It is. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, yeah. It's interesting, like, since World War II, you know, the boomers got the, they got the sweet spot probably one of the best times to live in human history. You know, they could uh, they could do what they like, really. They had a great time. But now it's falling to pieces. It is. The empire is crumbling. And, you know, even when you look at, you know, sort of self-flagellation and the, you know, the deep, overly deep introspection where, you know, you know, the sort of where white people hate themselves, it's like you weren't you didn't you weren't deliberately white. You didn't choose to be white, you know. But yet they're so comfortable. They've been given such a great, comfy society that they can just hate themselves. They're privileged enough to hate themselves. It's 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 a death knell. You know what I mean? Like because that the same shit happened in Rome, where you know Romans hated Romans. It's like uh oh. <laughs> <laughs> when you're comfortable enough, when you're comfortable enough to fucking hate yourself for 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 achieving comfort, then you should be worried. Do, do you have a lot of? Because I know there's a, with the new tropical fuckstorm album, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. Do you have a lot of like crazy right wing shit going on there? Yeah, but we follow behind the states. Generally, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. We'll do it. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, they, they do. There's lots of anti-vax stuff. They'll have anti-vax rallies here. Um, and, you know, they're, they're Australian-centric because of certain laws here or, you know, certain situations here. But then there'll be people there with Trump flags. And it's like, why are you doing that? You know what I mean? Like, So, yeah, there's, we, you know, there's a bit of QAnon. And if it isn't straight-up QAnon, it certainly takes huge cues from QAnon. You know, it's like being a Nazi or just being a fucking racist but not joining up to the Nazi party necessarily, you know, like, yeah. So it's fucked. It's really fucked up. It's a crazy time. Yeah, I have a friend in Toronto too and she tells me that there's like people who march down her street with Trump flags and it's just like, I I was... Uh, yeah, I mean, anyone with a slight intelligence here knows what a fucking bullshit artist he is. And it's just, it's amazing to me that it's something that is worldwide. The anti-vax, the, yeah. is, it, is it the same bullshit too, where it's like, my freedom? Yeah, they, they like the word freedom. They like, you know, do your own research. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's spread, but it, I mean, it's the same reasons. If people are disillusioned, you know. Like if you look at someone, my my dad's, you know, he's not a Trumpist, but he's he's getting there. But he's he's a white male who was promised so much. You know, he was told, okay, do your school, finish school, get a trade, save your money, buy a house, and you'll be sweet. 
But he doesn't, he did all that, but he doesn't own a house. It, it was a lie. You know, he came in too late. Um, you know, the disparity between the rich and poor had grown too great by the time he got on the scene. So his disillusionment against government and all that stuff, it's understandable, you know. But at the same time, it does, I don't see why it would excuse believing in utter bullshit or being racist or, or uh, yeah, you know, or believing in some idiot like Trump. Like, yeah, see, I, yeah I, but I, I can see a reason for it, you know, yeah. Yeah, see, I, I can only blame myself because I didn't go to school. I did drugs, and, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. fucked around. <laughs> yeah. That's what I did. I just I dropped out. I remember leaving school, thinking, "Thank fuck, the rest of my life is now a holiday. I'm going to have to work occasionally to get money, but I'm just going to have a holiday now." And um, yeah, I've, that's been my mission. I just dropped out of society and. Uh, I'm happy with with having earning a meager living and, and, and traveling around and playing music. Yeah, I like it. It's good. So I'm not yeah. I didn't take anything that was promised. So I don't give a fuck. I don't I don't hold it against anyone who promised it to me, you know. But say someone like my father or, or his generation did. They expected to get what they were promised and it didn't happen. So yeah. So that's why there's all that white rage, you know. But uh, yeah, it's it's just hard. And then, yeah. but my dad's a bird, and he had he had the comfiest existence, you know, of most humans who ever existed ever. Like, so it's got nothing to complain about. But yeah. now here we go. We're going. It's the it's the decline, the big decline, and the decline will take two hundred years. It's like what it did with Rome, you know. Yeah, and we're a satellite empire to to your big empire. We're we're, we're a little we're we're the fucking how many states are there? Fifty. I hope I hope I'm right. <laughs> like I said, I dropped out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're the fifty first. We're the fifty first state. <laughs> that's that's what we are. Australia. Yeah. Is there like how can, how bad is climate change? Is that recognizable there yet? I know you had a big fire by your house, which must have been fucking terrible. Was that climate? Yeah, was- yeah, it is. We live, we live in the bush. Um, we've not lived in the city for about 15 years. Me and Fiona have lived in the country for like in, in the mountains and then now we're in central Victoria, which is just you know, in the bush. Um and, yeah, you can see it. And all the farmers see it. It's not like the farmers are just these right-wing morons. Like, farmers can – why wouldn't they see – it's basically there's there's no seasons anymore. It's becoming like – well, there's like two seasons now. Used to be four. Now there's two. It's either wet and fucking cold <laughs> and with, with winds that knock trees over where they didn't knock trees over because, you know, fucking 400-year-old tree hasn't fallen over 400 years. Suddenly it did. Like, yeah. Um, and then the other part of it is hot and dry and just hot to the point where you think you're having a fucking stroke. You know, like 120 degrees in somewhere like Victoria where, where it shouldn't be. It's like it shouldn't be that warm for a fucking week, you know. And then the fires and all that stuff. Yeah, we were in a huge fire in 2009. Our house nearly burned down. and That was fucking, it was insane. It was illogical the way it worked. Um, I won't go into details, but, yeah, the, the fire was doing things that I just don't normally do, like, um, because everything is so dry, the winds are so high, the heat was so intense. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're seeing climate change. We, we're definitely seeing it. Yeah, we have. It's the same. We had to leave our town for a month because the hills, which are about a mile, maybe two miles north of our home, were just yeah. engulfed. And it was, we just had a baby. And I was like, can't stay here unless we want this kid to die. Yeah, fuck. I mean, yeah, we've driven. Last time we were in the States, we were driving down. It wasn't even that hot, but 
would have been like the beginning of summer or the end of summer. We were driving down from San Francisco down to LA and uh, the side of the freeway was just on fire. It was just like, holy fuck, this huge hill, just on fire. And it didn't feel like a, a, a fire-type day. And it was out of control. It was, yeah, it was fucked up. Yeah, but and it's, a, it's just the new. Yeah, it's, it's, everyone's like, it's fire season. I'm like, I don't, like, it's not something we should just be like, well, it's not like fucking snow or <laughs> it's like, oh, we're going to get that snowstorm. It's like, the, the, this is tearing up home. It's just insane. But people get, I don't know, that disconnect. Yeah, yeah. Well, most people don't have to live in the countryside where there's lots of trees, you know. Luckily, where we are now, um, there's a river and uh, there's lots of old sheep grazing areas, so it's half grassland. But where we used to be, where the fire was, we were up in the mountains in thick subalpine forest. So there was no getting away from the fire. It was just fucking terrifying. And it just cooked like fucking millions of hectares. Like it just destroyed all this old forest. And um, the forest in Australia is kind of known for its, it regenerates after a fire and it's designed to regenerate after a fire. Um, you know, it's evolved to do that. But it just cooked huge tracts of land. The heat was so intense, it was too hot for the trees and they died. Like, whereas for, you know, millions of years prior, they could cope with the heat they were served up and then they would regenerate and it would, you know, it would burst really tough, gnarly wooden seed pods, you know. But now those seed pods just, the heat, rather than bursting them, it just turns into ash, you know, which is, there you go, quarantine. Was it? But yeah, close? an hour. What's that? Oh, I was just, when that fire happened, was was it a close call for you guys? Were you like, we're going to yeah, fucking yeah, die? Yeah. We it jumped to our house. Yeah, yeah. The, the death thing was on the cards. Yeah. Um, it jumped to our house once and then came back. And then all the bulldozers came in and heaps of fire trucks. We had, and, uh, we had two of those big helicopters, the big sky cranes drop about, you know, 9,000 litres, like 4,000 gallons of water on your thing. Like, yeah, we had them. So they saved the house when it came back a second time. And I was posted up on a hill. I took a carton of beer and a thermos flask full of coffee. And I had to sit with binoculars. I had a radio. Um, I had to sit with binoculars and look up all night and keep an eye on the embers. And... Uh, the head of the fire department was like, all right, here's your radio. If you see the wind change, if the embers start travelling in a different direction, let us know and we've all got to get out of the valley. And I was naive. I was like, okay, cool, I'll do that. He's like, don't fall asleep. You'll stay up until the morning. Um, I said, well, what if I fall asleep? What if, <laughs> what if I, and he's like, we're, we're all going to die. Like that. We're all going to die. I just went, oh, okay. <laughs> so all night I just had a, I just have a beer, a coffee, a beer, a coffee, a beer, because I was fucking terrified. Like it's the only time the fire was so ferocious and so terrifying. Um, at any moment, all day, I could have just leant over and and vomited. And it wasn't the beer; it was the fear. The fear had me in this sort of state of nausea all day. Yeah, I could have just puked at any time just because I was shitting myself. Yeah, so that was that was wild. And then Leonard Cohen was here. He did a concert in Melbourne, you know, and he was broke at the time trying to make his money back because he got screwed by his manager. Um, and he gave all the money for his concert to, uh, you know, to, to, to like the, the Bushfire Appeal. That would have been, you know, Stadium concert would have been fucking probably nine million dollars. He just handed over to the to the powers that be so they could help bushfire recovery. Well, That's incredible. Yeah, mm. he was a big Buddhist. That I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but I know he was. He got yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Do you subscribe to anything like that, Buddhism or anything? Uh, no, no, I'm not, no, I'm not religious or anything. Um, no. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not agnostic. I'm just atheist, I guess. But uh, yeah, God knows what happens after you die. I, I would say, pretty sure, nothing happens. You just fucking die. <laughs> but, then, but then you know. Then, then you do something like you have DMT and you go, oh, fuck, okay. All right. Who knows? Have you had DMT? I haven't. I've, d- yeah. I, yeah, I've thought about it. I've done a lot of acid and mushrooms, so. I, I, this is like that. Like, it's like that times a thousand. It's hard to explain. But that made me think, okay, possibly maybe there's something after death but not in the classic sense, not in the kind of, you know, Abrahamic religious sense or even the Buddhist sense or but something that we don't understand, something to do with the, the mechanics of the universe that we don't seem to be able to grasp because the DNT just, I don't know, a four-dimensional universe, it just takes you for a little trip. <laughs> Did you see... Any cre- because I know like sometimes people see aliens or other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a uh, a huge bird on the edge of a insane fractal forest. It was cool. It was like a. I, I was I was stunned at the end of it. I was just like fuck. And then I was googling to see what other people's experiences were, and they were all incredibly similar. Like, so you have it. You smoke it through a bong, and then, uh, and uh, and then weirdly, it feels like there's an avalanche coming from behind you. You hear this sound, and you should be sitting on a couch. And this is if you have a really big dose. Make sure you're sitting down, and then you hear an avalanche coming, which is you know a bit disconcerting. And then you kind of go and pull back. I fell back onto the couch next to my friend who who just had. A, a, a big bong full of PMT as well. And um, then I remember uh, the deepest regret I'd ever experienced. I just remember going, I really regret doing this um, because suddenly I'm in a fucking parallel universe and it's real. It's not, it's not sort of like a dream or anything. It's just fucking real. I remember going, fuck, I really regret doing this. And then I opened my eyes. And I was still in the lounge room, but it was like I'd taken a kilo of magic mushrooms. Anyway, I thought, cool, I can open my eyes and at least get out of the parallel universe if I need to. So I shut my eyes and thought, fuck, I'll just deal with it. It's only 10 minutes. Yeah, and then I was next to a forest and there was this huge bird and it turned and looked at me and it didn't say anything. But, it, uh, you know, it's like if you're walking through the forest and you come across a deer you know, if you're by yourself and you sort of see a deer and it's only you and the deer in the middle of nowhere and there is some sort of there's some sort of recognition between mammals, there's some sort of recognition between sentient beings. Anyway, it was like that. Um, yeah, and then there was all these tunnels, fractal tunnels, and it's kind of hard to remember because it a lot of it defies physics as we, we know it in the three-dimensional world. Um, so it's hard for your memory to hold on to certain things because they're so strange. Anyway, yeah, after 10 minutes, it was just, it fucking blew my mind. I woke up and just was like, fucking hell, what just happened? Um, Yeah, then my friend woke up and then we just debriefed. We had to drink a lot of booze and smoke a lot of cigarettes, just like, holy shit. Um, Yeah, it was great. But it certainly changes your, um, it changes your, it changes your view. You know, and it's not to say I've become agnostic or, or even spiritual or but yeah, I don't know. It makes you think differently about the nature of existence. Yeah, you should try it. I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> uh would you do it again? Yeah, I would, yeah. But it's I think it's something you do like once a year, tops. You wouldn't yeah. do it more than that. It's it's it's, it's not it's not it's not pleasant, but it's not completely horrific, but it's not pleasant. 
But it's it's like I don't know. But like when I would do mushrooms, like once in a while you just sort of need that palate, wash the palate, mm. and just like reset yeah. and get your fucking head right because uh, yeah. too too much shit gets in there. At least for me, like I neuroses, and I just I'll I'll convince myself I have cancer half the time, and you know it's just a fucking pulled yeah. muscle. Mushrooms are amazing. I mean, they just do that thing where even a microdose. Yeah, I was like, say, depression or neurosis. It sort of makes you short-sighted in a way, and mushrooms open it up again. They uh, make you interested in things that you've grown jaded. You know, you might look at a tree and just go, fuck, that's phenomenally beautiful, whereas you've forgotten that. It brings yeah. you in a child, doesn't it? Like, but the mushy thing is great. It's, I mean, winter here has just sort of ended, and it's just down the road from me is a little patch. The mushrooms and um, really I can't pick them. Yeah, it's great. Um, yeah, they grow a lot around in, in, um, in Australia. Yeah, it's lots. Wow, that's fucking awesome! You could just go down the road and get. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they, they just do such a fantastic job of, of resetting your brain and just it just turns you back into a you know someone who's interested and and plug into you know, existence rather than someone who's sort of pushed it away and gone, internalised everything and, and become internal. And, yeah. yeah. It's like weird when you have these life moments that you kind of reset, not even just mushrooms, but like, like I got hit by a car once and I was like, everything's fucking bullshit. Like all the shit I've been worried about. Like I was, and for like a month, I was just like, this is all bullshit. Like just live life. And then of course it fades away. But uh, the, all the shit I worry yeah. about is fucking pointless. I've never ended up, you know, I've been in bad situations, but I've never ended up homeless. But in my head, I'm like, fucking, if I don't do this, I'm going to be on the street. And it, like, it's always the worst case scenario. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, and you learn that as a habit, that, that becomes a behavioral habit where you, you're, you know, you say, call it pessimistic, but constant pessimism begets more pessimism because you, you, you're building those pessimistic structures in your, in your brain, you know. So if you can just short-circuit that, which mushrooms does, or, you know, certain antidepressants will short-circuit that sort of habitual behaviour. Yeah. We also got that... Brief. Oh, sorry. All right, you go. Oh, I just said uh, we're both also, I think we're both working-class Irish descent, and that's, there's always a sense of doom and gloom with the working class Irish, at least in my family. Yeah, well, mine's kind of, my family's interesting. It's like, um, well, we're sort of Welsh. My uncle married into our family, so we're Welsh, English. That's my mum's side. And then my dad's side is like, his mum's from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and he, my dad was born in Rio de Janeiro. His father, who was English, was working for the telephone company there. So dad grew up in Rio de Janeiro. But, um, yeah, yeah. so I'm sort of Anglo, but with this weird roundabout kind of, you know, Anglo via South America, which is very odd. And we went there a few years ago. and I've never felt Brazilian. By any means, but hanging out with Brazilians, they're like, you know, where are your people from? Then I'd say, oh, well, my dad's from here. And they're like, oh, so you're part Brazilian? I'd go, well, no, you know, he was, you know, he was born here, but he was, you know, from English stock, come fucking Argentinian stock. But then they were all like, look, no one in fucking Brazil is from Brazil. They're really, uh, you know, intermingled racially. There's no full blood anything anymore. There really, except people who have just arrived, immigrants. But um, yeah, they were like, oh, well, "You're kind of Brazilian." I was thinking, "Cool." <laughs> felt a lot I suddenly felt, yeah, I felt like <laughs> felt like dancing, you know. What I mean? <laughs> but I can't. That's a, that doesn't have any connection to because when I was researching you, you have a lot of you listen to a lot of different music, and was that any influence of that, or was that from like your dad being from? Or was that just your own curiosity? Because I, you mentioned uh, um, Mighty Sparrow in one of your interviews, which I immediately went and listened to. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's Trinidad, right? Um, uh, I just like lots of different stuff, I guess. I like music. And I was kind of lucky enough to have, you know, when I was in, in, in the 90s, I had a friend, I would have been like fucking you know, 20. I had, well, I had a few older friends. One was like 37, one was 32, and they were mega music nerds. And so they really sped up the whole process. They showed me, you know, Lee Hazelwood or Talking Heads or, you know, they'd show me Shostakovich and they'd show me, I don't know, like, you know, um, so I learned a lot really fast. So by the time I was like 25, I had a pretty good musical knowledge, which I think is, I think you kind of need, you know, you can be punk rock, you know, you can be sort of non-virtuosic and you can, you know, quite trashy on your instrument but if you've got all this knowledge if you know what makes Prokofiev good the same way as what makes fucking you know, the dead boys good like that, that's fucking handy to know you don't need to be able to play like Yehudi Menuhin to, to take advantage of that you, know, you figure it out somehow yeah. so yeah I just really like music I guess I think it's well it's I don't know it's like congenital or something because I remember very early on just always being drawn to music. I remember I grew up partly in London and um, I remember hearing like Heart of Glass was a big hit, that Blondie song. And just it was the most you know, unfathomable, mysterious thing I've ever heard. And then Pink Floyd, The Wall, that record was out like 1979 or whatever. I remember hearing that. That was a big hit in England at the time and everybody just going, wow, this is intense, you know, not understanding it at all. But I was just always drawn to music and always have been. So I don't know. I just like it. It's just good music and shit music. <laughs> all right, Gareth, thank you very much for your time. I greatly appreciated it. No worries. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. It's, it's, uh, it's nice of you to talk. for listening to conversations with the wire please become a patreon subscriber if you like also subscribe to the show on your itunes or what have you not and tell your friends about the show that would mean a lot to me as well as uh, go to the link tree in the show notes or the mattdwire.com or conversations with the wire at the instagram and you could learn more about the show buy merch and all those great things thank you very much for listening <laughs>